It's Monday, April the 19th, 2021. More than 900 million vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loda, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens. Today, we'll look at why the EU's vaccine rollout got off to such a slow and muddled start. And we'll ask, has it now turned a corner? Natasha, hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you very much. I have been paying very close attention to what's been happening with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Earlier last week, the Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control recommended pausing the use of this vaccine out of an abundance of caution. The concern there was the presence of some, again, very rare blood clots of the kind that we've been seeing with the Astra vaccine. So another slight vaccine stumble, but but we'll talk about that in a bit more detail later in the programme. Sounds good. Um, joining us this week is Sophie Pedder, the Paris Bureau Chief at The Economist, who's been closely following the EU's vaccination programme. Sophie, hello. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. And no problem at all. It's lovely to have you. Tell us, Sophie, what's the situation in Paris right now with the, the infections and lockdowns and so on? Well, we are into the third week of the third national lockdown, so everything's shut again. Schools are shut, shops, non-essential shops are shut, and, you know, people are fairly fed up with it, really. I think that uh, there'd been a hope that we'd avoid this, but we haven't, so we are are where we are. And there's a hope that the infection rate may start now uh, coming down because after uh, after this latest lockdown. So... Things are still not looking good, but uh, there's a sort of hope that we might be turning the corner at some point soon. Well, we'll look into some of the reasons why the infection rates are going up and uh, what's been happening. Natasha, can you compare Sophie's experience in Paris with what's going on in London? London is doing amazingly well. um, And I think there's a real sense that we're through the hard part of what is our second wave and that things are going to get better from here on in. We've had this incredibly hard lockdown over the winter Um, The kids seem to have been off school for most of the year, to be honest. Um, But now they're back uh, in education, lockdowns loosening, the spring's here. And people are starting to feel more positive, I think. Um, And and then at the same time, of course, about half our population um, have been vaccinated and we're moving into vaccinating people in their 40s. So, I mean, the, the whole situation really looks quite different from here. Thank you, Sophie and Natasha. We'll go into all of those things throughout the episode. Europe's vaccination programme got off to a slow start. But Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, said last week that things are now accelerating. And the good news is vaccination is picking up speed across Europe. And I'm happy to say that today we have reached the 100 million vaccinations in the European Union. 
This is a milestone that we can be proud of. Europe, however, still lags far behind Britain and America, which have given out nearly three times as many injections per 100 people. France's president, Emmanuel Macron, has said that Europe's vaccine efforts lacked ambition. On a eu tort de manquer d'ambition, j'allais dire de folie. Oui, de dire c'est possible et on y va. On est trop rationnel, peut-être. Right now, the continent is experiencing a third wave of COVID-19. It's important to know that in normal times, vaccines procurement is a matter of national competencies. And in normal time, each company would have had to, uh, to do their own deal with the 27 member states. Sibilia Quilici is executive director of Vaccines Europe, which is a trade group for the pharmaceutical industry. The European Commission definitely took a much more collaborative approach with advanced purchase agreements, uh, where he had the agreement, uh, the authorization to negotiate on the behalf of, of the 27 member states to ensure equitable access to, to the vaccines as quick as possible for the, the whole uh, region. And this was definitely uh, something completely new. So definitely uh, took some time uh, to set up, to define it. It, it defines the European vaccine strategy back to June last year, uh, starting the negotiation uh, over the summer, and then signs the first uh, actually uh, agreement, uh, certainly after potentially the US or, or the UK, which were uh, much more ready. So few months delays between the, the, the agreement signed US, uh, UK versus Europe. But in the same way, Europe is uh, actually negotiated for its 27 member states to ensure equitable access. Sophie, can I start with you? Can you just give us a brief explanation of how the EU got to the point where its rollout was so slow, rollout of vaccines? Well, I think you have to go back to this time last year. And I can remember talking to French officials at the time when the pandemic first broke out. And one had the feeling that things were really being improvised. There was, as as has just been said, there was no health competence for the European Commission. So there was no structure, there was no system, there was no uh, sort of a joint way of confronting this. And everybody initially did their own thing. And it was only really by the spring uh, 2020 that the European Commission got the health competence to arrange the procurement of vaccines. And that was a huge step. And, you know, I think that the European member states themselves were really pleased about this. This was a, a sort of gesture of solidarity. It's all part of the European spirit. It was the idea that you know, for the small country, it was quite a good idea to have them part of the the joint procurement, given that there was a sort of market power that the EU together, all 27 states would have in negotiating with the, with the vaccine companies. So I don't think at that point, people thought that this was a bad idea. But then I think if you need to look at the, not the downside of having sort of thrown together this team of, of negotiators at the last minute without that kind of experience is it really wasn't seen as it was in the UK, for example, as a sort of venture capital minded exercise where you throw a lot of money at it. It's quite speculative. You don't know quite what's going to come back or which vaccines are going to work out to have been good bets. It was, it was almost more of a procurement decision in the classic way as if they were buying, I don't know, laptops or masks and therefore they haggled on price. And you ended up with contracts that weren't satisfactory, didn't guarantee absolute sort of guaranteed deliveries. And you ended up with the vaccine companies, some of them and notably AstraZeneca, that's the one where there's been such a lot of tension between the EU and the UK, um, deciding that the contract with the UK was more watertight than it was with the EU. And the EU, as a result, has ended up having to export a fair number of, of vaccines out of the EU. 
Let's go into a few of the issues you've raised. But, but, but before we do, I wonder if you could just, just explain how the, the European Commission works. What is a competency uh, and, and why is health not one of them? A competence is what the member states uh, mandate the European Commission to do on their behalf. So, for example, uh, international trade policy is an obvious example. What they don't do, or what is the, the tradition has been to try to keep the national governments in charge of what is ultimately seen as, as national policies. So education, for example, the European Commission doesn't interfere in whether you set uh, exams at what, or what date or what sort of exams you set in schools. Um, health policy was seen traditionally also as something that national governments do. And if you look across the continent, there are just so many different, very different health systems in place. And that's been considered a, a strength. You know, some people rely more on a sort of NHS type setup. Uh, France for example, is extremely uh, fragmented and uh, it's it's a real hybrid of sort of private and public, national, local, regional, uh, and also self-employed GP system. So uh, I think that was seen as a strength at the time, and that's a judgment that's now changing. Natasha, when you when you hear Sophie talking about the background to the recent sort of the, the slow rollout of the, of the EU, and and given you know you've covered this inside out for the last year, who do you think's to blame? Well, where do you see the blame lying? Well, let's just unpack a bit what happened. Okay, so procurement was too slow and cautious. So that's the Commission. They were also quite late to authorize the vaccines for use. Um, And that's because Europe didn't want to assume liability for the products, uh, which was kind of politically difficult. Um, So that's more of a structural problem um, with with the EU more generally. And then um, the Commission assumed that what they ordered would arrive on time rather than giving vaccine makers a sort of a longer lead time so that they could maximise yield, which is more of what happened in, in countries that have done better. And then, of course, all the vaccine makers did have delays, of course, Uh, not just AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca just got most of the flack. So, I mean, firmly, (laughs) the blame falls on Europe, as far as I'm concerned, and on the Commission specifically. And there was a lot of noise and heat over the last few months. But this is really what, what it came down to. Were the the contracts negotiated badly in the first place? Or did the European Commission just do them in good faith, but then obviously in the real world, when it came down to it, the free market didn't quite work in the way that that they wanted? No, it's really simple. They were just too slow to negotiate the contracts, okay? And because they dithered, they didn't get such good delivery terms as countries that did earlier deals. And, you know, watching last year, I was seeing a flurry of aggressive investments and procurements being made by other countries. And by the third quarter, I was actually very worried that the EU had made little progress. Um, Now, on November the 17th, the head of Moderna went public with a warning to the EU. He said that it was creating problems for itself by dragging out negotiations on vaccine deals. And he said, this will slow down deliveries to the EU as other countries that have signed deals will get priority. And remember, by November the 17th, we have fantastic efficacy results from the first vaccine already, which is also an mRNA vaccine. And Europe hasn't done its deal with Moderna. And also remember that in the middle of the spat with AstraZeneca, the head of AstraZeneca said that the EU was three months slower than the UK in doing its deals. And so the EU can complain 
all it likes about watertight contracts and this and that. But the fact is, is that if you're slower to make those deals, it's quite possible that other countries will have uh, essentially stitched up better delivery terms because they're first in line. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you, Sophie. In Europe, health policy is the responsibility of national governments. Apart from the European Medicines Agency, which approves new drugs, most decision-making actually happens within member states. That means that countries within Europe are vaccinating at different rates. Sondre Solstad from The Economist data team has been digging into the latest data for us. And as we've done so often in this podcast, we've turned that data into sound. Let us first listen to the vaccination effort in Bulgaria. As the worst performer in the EU, just 9% of the adult population have received their first dose, just 2% a second. In tiny but wealthy Luxembourg, 153,000 vaccinations have been enough to cover 22% of adults, and nearly half of these with two shots. Vaccinations in Germany are the most numerous. There, 24% have received their first dose, and 8% their second. Leading the pack is the island nation of Malta, where 53% have received the first dose, and of these, almost half are already fully vaccinated with two shots. Sandra, how does the EU vaccine rollout compare to other places? I'd say not great, not terrible. Nearly one in five adults have now had their first dose, which is worse than Britain and the United States but about equal with Canada and better than Australia, Japan, or for that matter, China. Among world regions, it's only beaten by North America, so not terrible. Not terrible, but not great either, you said. Far from it. Uh, First off, it's performing below potential. Um, The European Union is rich with world-class public health systems and scientists. We would expect it to be on par with other rich countries, but compared to some, it has fallen behind. Moreover, the gap is growing. Currently, about 0.5% of the EU population receive a vaccination daily, compared to 0.7% in Britain and 1.2% in the United States. But you said it was better than Australia and Japan. Yes, it's doing better than Australia and and Japan, but the situations um, facing these these places are far, far from equal. Unlike Australia and Japan, which have the virus under control, they're recording over 100,000 new cases daily. The simple truth is that vaccinations save lives, and the worse an outbreak is, the more lives they save. And also, vaccines reduce transmission. What this means is that the current wave of infections in the EU makes its slower vaccination drive have a terrible cost in people sick and lives lost. Can you put it into context for us? What is the current state of the pandemic in the EU right now? So the number of cases um, is only eclipsed by South Asia, which is seeing a terrible uh, spike at the moment. Um, So about 130,000 are diagnosed daily, and um, the number of deaths hovers around 22 to 2,700 on a daily basis. 
Natasha, what is the state of the pandemic in Europe more broadly at the moment? Well, as a bloc, Europe's not doing well at all. And the question is not now whether there's going to be a third wave, but really how bad it will be. And if you look at the big important countries, cases are trending upwards, not downwards. I'm thinking of France, Germany, Spain. There are even signs of an uptick in Italy. So this is all very concerning. And even in Hungary, which has done uh, relatively well on vaccination, they have an uptick in cases. And also, as Sandra highlighted, deaths are rising as well, and that's been putting pressure on hospitals across the block. I think Poland is the latest to have serious problems. And of course, we're seeing restrictions and lockdowns either continued or introduced all across the continent. And just as the weather is improving, people are being asked to restrict their activities and stay at home. We are hearing about lockdown fatigue. And so this is all very concerning. I mean, Europe is a big place. I would also say Portugal and Ireland are doing quite well at the moment. And just to sort of zoom out slightly, beyond the kind of human element to this, there's also a political dimension as well to how well it's doing. Europe naturally compares itself to other economies like Britain and America. And, you know, here is where the comparison just doesn't look good at all. In both of these places, cases are trending downwards, they're unlocking, they're vaccinating quickly. And this is having economic and then political consequences. And so both of these countries are likely to have economic recoveries long before Europe does. And so that in turn will have a political consequence if Europe's just having an absolutely dire summer. Uh, can I ask you both how much we know about whether the rising infection rate in Europe is down to the lack of vaccines or whether it's down to other factors? I mean, it's probably a mix, but I just, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts, uh, Sophie. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting one here in France, which is where I'm based. Um, what we've seen since the beginning of the year is a sort of constant trade-off, daily trade-off being made by the government about whether or not to lock down in advance and when it would have been extremely difficult to have convinced people that this was needed, um, when the British variant, as they call it, B117, had started to appear in France and that the projections of the epidemiologists who are advising the government suggested that there would be a third wave by March. But it was also about whether or not there is a cost to society by shutting schools. Uh, the French have kept schools open since uh, pretty much last June when children went back and they've been back in school all academic year and, and only stopped going uh, two weeks ago. So there was the concern about schools and about education, about educational inequality as well, uh, a concern that those who had, had lost out during the two months the schools were shut last year were those who come from poorer backgrounds and where it's much more difficult for them to catch up. And, and finally, a concern about mental health. You know, there's a real issue in France, a real concern about young people. Mental health consultations have been rising really dramatically this year. This is what was going through the minds of government, not just in France, but other countries too. If you look at Germany, Angela Merkel, the chancellor there, proposed a five-day very tight lockdown over Easter. There was probably an, an outcry in the country and she had to reverse pretty rapidly on that and, and not impose it. So these are trade-offs that are being made all the time in, in European countries. And it, it's, I think, reflects the fact that obviously they wanted to save lives, but that has been, has been set against other concerns in a broader society concerns as well. I think clearly in Britain, the lockdown is what 
has got us to where we are now. It's not vaccination that has driven our case numbers down. And um, vaccination has been very helpful in reducing our death rate, that's for sure. But the case numbers have come down through lockdown. And we took the British variant very, very seriously early on. Now is the time Europe really needs to redouble its efforts with regards to restrictions on lockdowns. It really does need to get control of the situation. Otherwise, things are just going to get much, much worse. We know that. The European Commission says that 70% of the adults in the EU will be fully vaccinated by the end of the summer. That would put the bloc's vaccination efforts just a few months behind Britain and America, perhaps even less. But plenty could still go wrong between now and the end of the summer. My name's Stanley Pignal and I write about European business and finance based in Paris. Stan's been looking into the main challenges EU countries could face as vaccination efforts ramp up. Well, firstly, uh, you have to assume that the supply is going to come in. So that that's on the cards. Basically, in the next three months, April, May, June, we should be seeing about 100 million doses a month, which is double what we had previously. And one also has to assume that there are going to be fewer supply surprises, um, which has been one of the big problems in, in Europe. Politicians are keeping a very close eye on production and, and timeline. So let's assume when you the supply. Say surprises, you mean the things like the AstraZeneca Precisely. issue around, yeah. Yeah, 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 which, which really caught Europe off guard. So assuming the supply comes in, the challenge is going to be getting needles in arms, right? There is in Europe some vaccine hesitancy. You've discussed it on, on, on this show. Uh, and as the uh, supply arrives, you're going to need to find more arms uh, to inject more jabs into. The vaccination campaigns have really focused so far on people who've been older, who've had comorbidities, who've been in retirement homes. Now the challenge is going to be uh, vaccinating people who may feel less personally at risk from COVID. And how do you see all of that playing out? In Europe, you're going to see a different dynamic than you saw in the UK or the US or Israel, um, where the vaccinations happened kind of as, as a wave was really uh, progressing and could expect to get worse through the winter. Europe is really going to do a lot of vaccination, presumably, hopefully, as the cases start to come down, if, if 2021 is anything like, like 2020. And so the big vaccination push is going to be done at a time when people might feel the pandemic is kind of going away anyway. Are they really going to book themselves to get two injections at, at the doctor? So it's going to require a real uh, push from the authorities to get people vaccinated, um, which in, in the UK and in Israel and in the US, um, you know, th that push really came from the fact that there's a raging epidemic going on, which showed no sign of going away. So fear of the epidemic and fear of infection, it does always play a part in pushing people to getting vaccinations. Um, it's something that's probably unacknowledged a little bit. But uh, as you've pointed out in Europe, if if the cases are going down, uh, then it, it might mean that some people become a little bit complacent. But what do EU leaders, what do EU countries, what kind of plans do they have in place to counteract some of this? Well, so we don't know the extent of the problem on vaccine hesitancy. And I should say, so I'm in, I'm in France, which is kind of seen as, as one of the hotbeds of vaccine skepticism. But 
Um, if you look at the figures for old age homes, uh, where the French have very good data, 97% of people in old age homes have had at least one dose and 75% have had two doses. Um, if you look at the over 75s, around two thirds of people over 75 have had uh, at least one dose. And anecdotally, not everybody who's wanted to get vaccinated has been able to get vaccinated. So these figures are actually, to my mind, really encouraging. They show that certainly for that population, at least, um, the scare stories um, that, that that kind of were doing the rounds at the start of the vaccination campaign haven't, haven't materialized. Question is, what do those figures look like when it's 30-year-olds, 20-year-olds, uh, who also uh, will need to get vaccinated? Ironically, at the beginning of the campaign, there was a sense that people uh, might be skeptical of the Pfizer and Moderna uh, jabs, which rely on, on this new mRNA technology uh, compared to the more traditional AstraZeneca jabs and, and others. Actually, now it's been exactly the contrary. Uh, people seem to be much keener on getting the Pfizer jab. And France has had a little bit more trouble, and the rest of Europe has had a little bit more trouble getting people to take the, the AstraZeneca jab. Obviously, part of that is to do with all the discussion there's been around the clotting issue and, and so on. So, Sophie, Europeans may not get the summer holidays that perhaps they're used to and, and would like, but it looks like things are improving. Has the block turned a corner? Well, I suppose there are two uh, different elements to this. One is the supply of uh, vaccines. I mean, this is what's been holding things up uh, for the reasons we've discussed. But the European Commission has just announced an extra 10 million deliveries of the Pfizer drug. But I think Stanley touches on the second point, which is what happens next when the supply is there and it's no longer a question of people not being able to get appointments and you turn to those who are much more sceptical about it. And this is really uncharted territory at the moment. You know, I, sometimes you look at the polls and the French are very good at telling pollsters one thing and actually doing another. So I take these, these things with, you know, a certain sort of sceptical um, approach. But you have to look at some other pockets, not just young people who are who tell the polling agencies that they're more sceptical, but even also people who live in rural areas or blue-collar workers. There was one poll which asked, you know, do you have confidence in the Pfizer vaccine? In Paris, the Paris region, 63% said yes, but in rural areas, it was only 49%, and among blue-collar workers, only 43%. So it just gives you a sense of where those sort of pockets of resistance might be. Natasha, you're the vaccine hesitancy expert here. Is that when we talked about this a lot last in the last episode in America, the vaccine hesitancy there, where around thirty percent of people are hesitant about the idea of taking any vaccine? Is there a broad difference between America and and Europe and then the way that people approach um, their confidence with the vaccines? I think each country has a different approach to vaccination. It's very hard to compare Europe and America because Europe is a collection of a lot of very different nations. And, you know, when Europeans are thinking about whether they're going to get a vaccine, certainly they have one regulator to look to and who, who says whether it's safe or not, but also they look to their national governments. And the extent to which they trust what those governments say will vary. Also, they have different histories as well. And some countries may have had histories of uh, vaccine scepticism or hiccups over vaccination that kind of hang over to this day. And so you see a kind of real 
patchwork of differences. And then kind of overlaid on that, you have the fear factor as well. The question really comes down to the young people, the 30-year-olds, the 40-year-olds. I think everyone who's above 50 is going to want to get vaccinated. Uh, Only a small number won't because the risks are just you know, real. And so beyond that, I think we'll have to see how the differences play out. It's going to be incumbent on governments and various forms of sort of leaders within different groups of society to lead the way in terms of encouraging people to get vaccinated. Natasha, this is probably a good time to just have a bit more discussion about what's going on with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Um, There are It seems to be links with blood clots for that vaccine too. Can you just bring us up to speed? Well, um, last Tuesday, the Food and Drug Administration and the Centres of Disease Control and Prevention recommended that the Johnson & Johnson uh, COVID vaccine be paused. And the reason for this is that, as we've seen uh, with the AZ vaccine, we're seeing these kind of very rare blood clots turn up. So they had seen six cases in the more than 7 million people who had received the shot up until that point. The extended pause is a shame, of course, because the chance of getting clots are minimal compared to the risk of dying from COVID. Um, And it's exactly the sort of thing we've been hearing from the AZ vaccine, rare blood clots. And so the big issue I think now is, um, you know, how do we label these vaccines you know, what warnings do we give doctors and patients about the side effects they might get in the rare instances that they have these clots? And how do we treat them? What kind of recommendations do we give for treatment? And so I I think the bottom line is that these vaccines are still, you know, well worth having and very much needed. Some countries may decide, as they have with the AZ vaccine in Europe, to give it to certain age categories who are more at risk of clotting. But whatever your age is, it's still going to be much better for you to get a vaccine uh, than to not because of the risk of COVID. Can we talk about what the future looks like after the pandemic, how the European Commission and the European Union does its health policy? Uh, Sophie, do you think that there have been lessons learned by European leaders from this pandemic? Um, certainly there have been lessons. I'm not sure that, you know, right in the middle of the crisis is the time that they're sitting down to sort of draw those lessons out. You know, they're still trying to manage this third wave and things are are, are not looking good. So it'll take a bit of time for those lessons to come out. But I, I'm one thing that strikes me, I think, is that although Europe, you know, hasn't been having a good pandemic, as it were, especially on the vaccine front, um, it hasn't really shaken, I wouldn't say, the sort of the, the faith among the, the believers. And what I mean by that is that there is a very strong current in in a lot of European countries, in Germany and France, but also in the Netherlands, um, in, in Italy now, in other countries, in the smaller countries too, that the European project is really important. And it's really important that countries, you know, stick together uh, and that they do things together and that, they, that the things don't turn into a sort of competitive catfight amongst them. And I think that is what has been driving this desire to try and sort out a health policy or at least some form of health competence for the European Union. That is really interesting. Do, do you think that the, the European Union comes out of it stronger Well, again, I think it's too early to say, but it also depends a little bit what you mean by the European Union. You know, if you're talking about the Commission, yes, you know, Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission president, has not uh, come out of this looking great. But at the same time, and and there's always been that tradition and that sort of tendency to blame Brussels when things go wrong. I suppose, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that 
the whole kind of blame game and the sort of competitive, you know, who's doing better, who's doing worse, it's not that helpful because if you want to get to a point where the virus has nowhere to go, where most people are vaccinated, everyone has got to be in that situation. And therefore, you know, the fact that Europe's behind is a problem, but it's a problem for everybody. It's a problem for those in Britain who want to come to here on their holidays. It's a problem for um, those outside Europe as well. So I think, you know, in a sense... What's damaging is is spending too much time worrying about the sort of the, the, the negative situation rather than trying to work out how we can get this situation sorted in a way that benefits everybody. This is a microcosm of the argument we've made in many programs already, isn't it? That uh, the, the pandemic is not over until it's over in the whole world. Now, just before we go, have either of you seen anything you'd like to share? There was uh, one unusual quarantine story which uh, caught my eye from earlier, for a few days ago, which was the news that the French astronaut, Thomas Pisky, who is about to become the first French commander, I think, of the International Space Station, has gone into quarantine. And the reason he's gone into quarantine, obviously, is because he needs to make sure that he doesn't take COVID to the International Space Station when the they take off from Florida, which I think takes place on April 22nd. So an unusual quarantine story. Well, an amazing one. Can you imagine getting, take, taking COVID into space? That would, be a, that would be a disaster. The first French commander is also quite an achievement. And that at least we know that the food on the space station will get much better now as a result, surely. Well, I have to say this guy is quite, he's quite something. He has an amazing social media following in both English and French. His heading into space is going to be massively followed here. People need a good news story. Well, exactly, as if astronauts aren't heroes enough. Well, Sophie, Natasha, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you both very much for having me. That's all from us. The show's producer is Duncan Barber. The sound designer is Nico Rofast. And the editor is Sandra Schmueli. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. We'll have more on The Jab next week, when we'll examine what the world's learnt about the coronavirus and pandemics in general after more than a year of studying and living with the new virus.